I need a volunteer that'll come up and read a passage of scripture in front of everybody. Is there anybody bold enough to do it? Yes, come on, brother. Colossians chapter 3, get your Bibles out. Oh, wow, you get to even use my Bible. It's actually in Greek, so I hope you can interpret it. <laughs> chapter 1, or chapter 3, and we're going to go through uh, 6. Okay? But before you do that, go up to this microphone right here. Let me explain what uh, we've been going through Colossians for the last couple of months, and uh, let me try to explain what we're doing when we get into a book of the Bible. We try to go through a book verse by verse. We try to give you a big overview of what's happening. If you remember when we first started this series, we talked about who wrote it, who they're writing it to, to give us some kind of historical perspective try to get the mindset of the person that wrote it, but also the mindset of the people that are receiving it, so that we can better have a grasp as to what this means. So a couple of months now, we've been going through the first chapter, which talks a lot about uh, who Jesus is. Remember, we did the Man, the Myth, the Legend series, and then we got into chapter two, and we talked a lot about what he had done, the series of uh, what have you done for me lately. And now we're in chapter three, and we've spent months talking about who is Jesus, what he's done, and what is our response now to what he's done. So now we've entered into chapter 3. And this would be the third in the series uh, on chapter 3 so far, and it's a 480-week series. So <laughs> just making sure you're listening, all right? It's really 462. I'm kidding. All right, you got to introduce yourself. Uh, I'm Gregory Pensky. Give it up. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Do you normally volunteer for stuff like this, Gregory? Uh, Is this pretty par for the course for you? Not necessarily. All right. Okay. I love it then. Go ahead. So chapter three, what page if you're in a house Bible? 818 if you want to uh, look that up in one of the house Bibles. If you don't have a house Bible, I don't even know where they are this morning, so I'm sorry. Uh, but you can probably get them at the information table. So, Gregory. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on, hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Okay, stop there. So Paul is saying, remember what we said in chapter 1? This is who Christ is. Then in chapter 2, he says, this is what Christ has done for you. So now set what we think about ourselves, we think about our world, we think about others around us, we think about our calling, our lives, our careers, everything that we give our lives to, fill in the blank. Think about those things in light of who Christ is and what he's done for you. Then he goes a step further and he says, now also set your heart on the things that, who Christ is and what he has done. Okay, so you, he's, he's connecting us to the last two chapters. He is brilliant, is he not? Bit repetitive, but brilliant. Okay, Gregor. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Thank you, Gregory. You did a beautiful job, by the way. <laughs> Well, so Paul is saying, if we're going to set our hearts, if we're going to set our lives, if we're going to set our minds on who Jesus is and what he has done for us, this completed, finished work of Christ, 
He says there are certain things that you're going to have to take out of your life. There are certain things that don't fit with what we got from the first chapter and the second chapter. One of those is sexual immorality, and Joel talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and then one of that is greed, and Dave talked about that last week. But before we get into the really juicy ones, anger, malice, slander, you know, the kind of things that seem to spiderweb their way into our lives every day, there's this little sentence right here at the end of what Gregory the Great read. Do you see it there in verse 6? Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Let's just stop. I mean, we cannot, I can't leapfrog over that. Because I want you to know that when I hear that, there's something inside of me that just, the wrath of God. I mean, when you talk to people, people say to you, I, I believe in a loving God. I believe in a God of love. You hear about that all the time here at Midtown. And so when we hear words like wrath, it's hard for us to say, I, I can love a God who's loving, but it's hard for me to take a God who sends people to hell or pours his wrath out on somebody. And I often hear people here and in the city, uh, in the coffee shops, is that's not my God. My God is a God of love. He's not a God of wrath. It's so attractive, isn't it? And I like that, but I can't, I can't just jump over this passage about God of wrath. You know, it's funny. Uh, it's kind of a theme that's kind of lost the church in many ways. Um, you know, you don't hear a lot of songs anymore about the wrath of God is coming. You know, I don't turn on the Christian radio, you know, burn, burn, burn. I don't, you know, you don't hear that. I just don't, you know, it seems to be kind of lost. You know, the days of Jonathan Edwards, you know, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Has anybody read that? Did you have to read that for literature class or freshman year in college? I did, you know, and we read it and goes, man, this guy, imagine being married to this guy. Like, whoa, you know, this imagery of God and his wrath. And it's easy to recall from that and say, I just can't, I can't, I can't, I can't love, love, wrath, no. But let's take a look at this because it's important for us in this room. And I want to address two people in this room. The first group that I want you to hear that I'm speaking very specifically to you are those that know Christ, that he's a part of your life, that you would call yourself a believer, a Christian, whatever term you want to use that you welcome this, uh, this table of communion as a familiar place for you in celebrating uh, your own faith. But I also want to talk to those of you that are on that fence of trying to discover, you know, what is this Christian journey all about? And who is this Jesus? And what is this, this thing called Christianity and faith? Maybe a skeptic on a journey of discovery. This is also for you as well. So let's begin. You know, wrath is not a foreign concept in the Bible. If you go to the Old Testament, almost at the very beginning of the Bible, you see these two brothers, Cain and Abel, and uh, Cain loses his temper and becomes resentful and angry toward his brother Abel, and, uh, and he kills him. And what happens when Cain kills Abel? The Bible says that the blood of Abel cried out from the ground for justice. 
that this, uh, this man who had offered a better sacrifice to the Lord was killed by his brother. And his blood was calling out saying, this is wrong. And God was saying, I agree that this is wrong. And he brought judgment onto Cain. He became a forever wanderer. He cursed him. He marked him. And so very at the very beginning of the Bible, we see that God has some wrath. He has some judgment that he put on somebody according to their actions. But we don't have to go much further, you know, if you've read much of the Bible or if you've watched old movies, you know, about Moses and, you know, and let my people go and, you know, the Red Sea, it parts. Well, how do you think they got to the Red Sea? It was God's wrath that came on the plagues on Egypt. You know, and the first plagues were really inconvenient and annoying. But the last plague was brutally dark, wasn't it? The death of the firstborn of every household. We also see that, you know, uh, a year or so back we did a series on Jonah. Uh, you remember the guy that got swallowed by the whale? Uh, or the large fish? Or the sea monster? However you want to interpret that. And he was going to Nineveh. And what was the message that he was bringing to Nineveh? He was saying, repent for the wrath of God is coming. That God was about to bring destruction on the city of Nineveh if they didn't repent. And then of course, you know, there's a lot more that we can come up with. Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and the pillar of salt, you know, all this stuff where God is pouring out his wrath. But that's the Old Testament, right? And we're a New Testament church. We serve the new and improved God. He's love. He's no longer wrath. He's not ticked off anymore. He's happy. And, well, that would be really convenient for us to believe if it wasn't for what the Bible said. In John chapter 3, maybe you're familiar with this text. This is the text that you see at all the baseball games. You know, the chapter, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you know, 316. But the very last verse in John chapter 3 says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. And listen to this. For God's wrath remains on him. If you have time, you know, you can scribble down Romans chapter 1. That's a whole chapter worth going to read if you want to study this topic. In verse 18, it doesn't leave any confusion when it says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So, let me state some stuff about this wrath of God. Scriptures tell us that God is a consuming fire. That because of his holiness, because of his righteousness, because of his purity, because of his otherness, he is the righteous judge. And as the righteous judge, he stands on the throne of his judgment. That throne in which every one of us will appear. Every one of us. And the Bible says that every thought, every word, every deed that we have ever done will come under the perfect, holy scrutiny of the God in heaven, who is a perfect and holy judge. And what does it mean that he's holy? 
You know, actually, it's hagios is the, is the Greek word for holy, which comes from the word hagos, which means awful thing. That it is, it, if any, if you read anything in scripture where God appears to people through angels or even into his own self, people fall down as if they're dead because they say, I have seen the holiness of God. I've seen his purity. It is so awful in the sense that it is so other that it would shock us to lay our eyes upon it. Because holiness means his uniqueness. That he is holy and unique. It also means that he is set apart. That he is different from us, without stain, without blemish. And it also means that, he, that it's light. Holiness is a reference to light. That he is the light, the pure light that brings light into the darkness. He is a consuming fire. The Bible even says disturbing stuff like this. He's storing up wrath for the day of judgment. How is it possible? How is it possible for a loving God to also be a God of wrath? In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 9, it says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now this gives us a picture of of how we view the wrath of God because his hatred and his love are not contradictory to one another they're actually in harmony with one another just like we would expect it to be let me try to explain see all love especially perfect love always has some hate in it right my daughter uh, Maggie I love her I mean I love my daughter there is nothing that I would not do for my daughter. Matter of fact, if wickedness came against my daughter, there is nothing that I would not do to protect her, to guard her. The other night, she was taking a friend home from school. Can I tell the story? Can I, I mean, not school, from being over at our house. I'm going to try to tell the story correct because I always get scolded on getting details wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> She was in her blue VW Bug, and she was, it, it was Friday night, is that correct? Just, okay, Friday night, I don't want to fall under the wrath of Maggie. Uh, it was a fearsome and holy thing. She was kind of, she came home after taking her friend home, and was really shaken, and scared, and almost in tears, because someone had, uh, in a big truck, had gotten on her bumper and had stayed on her bumper the whole way to her friend's house and scared her and her friend. That he could have easily wrecked them, he could have easily ran into them, he could have easily caused them to steer off into the ditch. But more importantly, he scared them, he terrorized, and I'm saying to him, it could have been a her in a big pickup truck, I don't know. I can tell you that it stirred things in me. It stirred things, you should have called me. You should have just parked right there and, and I would have come. Because it stirred in me a sense of justice and a sense of protection and even a sense of hatred for any wickedness that would come near that which I loved and cherished. So my love for her also stirs up my hatred for anything that would come against her, for anything that would threaten her, for anything that would destroy her. And let me tell you, as a father of a teenage daughter, that list is long, all right? 
and almost everything on the list has a boy's name behind it, all right? <laughs> Wickedness. True? <laughs> You'll never understand unless you're a daughter or a father in here, right? Okay, that means that we won't go through that. Listen to what Becky uh, Pippert said in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer. The cancer which is eating out the inside of the human race he loves with his whole being. God hates sin. And does he hate sin because that's what a God does? You know, when you're perfect and you're holy, you know, I don't know what images you might have of God, but God who is sinless, is he like your grandfather that never made the mistake that you made and he looks down on you in, in a self-righteous kind of way and says, well, I, I would have never done that. In my day, we would have never gotten in debt. You know? Is that what it is? No, it's not. That's not what it is. This isn't a self-righteous looking down his nose at us. This is a God in his perfect, holy, pure place perfectly understands the deception and the destruction of sin. In his position, he understands beyond further than any of us could ever understand the cancer of sin. And if God understands that, how can God ignore it? How can God embrace sin and say, oh, it's no big deal, when he knows more than any of us what a big deal it is? So what's up with this hell thing? One of my professors in seminary, uh, a guy named R.C. Sproul, had this to say, almost all the biblical teachings about hell comes from the lips of Jesus. Almost all that we know about hell is what we read and what Jesus said. The Bible describes hell as a place of outer darkness, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and a gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal separation from the blessing of God. This is what's in the Bible. A prison, a place of torment, where the worm doesn't turn or die. These graphic images of eternal punishment provoke the question, should we take these descriptions literally or are they merely symbols? I want to suggest to you, and if we had time today, I could take you through some of the language that Jesus used. I think they're symbols. I think Jesus isn't describing that when we go to hell that we're going to be thrown into a lake of fire and that we'll just burn for all of eternity. Whew. That's good news, isn't it? Well, sort of. I think Jesus was giving us symbols because he had no way to describe the real thing. I think it's worse. And what does that worse look like? I think it's something that we can see. If we go back to Romans chapter 1, we see a taste of God's wrath. And a taste of his wrath is, Paul is talking about people that had rejected God. That although they had a knowledge of God, they rejected it. And God gave them over to themselves. He gave them over to what they really wanted. God pulled back the restraint and said, okay, you can have it. And that's a picture of the wrath of God, moving his presence back and letting people have what they want. 
and sin like a cancer devour them. It's really almost like hell on earth. Let me give you a modern day illustration of what I mean by that. Have you ever seen Jersey Shore? <laughs> For those of you not seen it, don't go watch it, just ask somebody around you. Okay, this isn't gonna work, but I'm, I'm in it now, so I'm going with it, all right? Imagine that every year, the craziness of Jersey Shore increased by 10%. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Come on, Snooky. She can do it. 10%. And for the next 60 years, 10% complicated on 10%, complicated on 10%, 10% more, 10% more, 10% more, 10% more, to where there's an episode now, Jersey Shores in their 80s. And they're all 80 years old at Jersey Shores, but now they're 500 times worse in the darkness of what they're living in now then. It wouldn't be funny, would it? It would be pathetic, wouldn't it? Because now they've become a prisoner of their own insane thinking. Because who lives like that? It's entertaining because they're like, what is that? You've got to be kidding. You got punched in the face? What? You see what I'm saying? Is it 80 years old, they're 500 times worse, meaning they're 500 times darker in the pit that they live in even now. Is anybody saying that's sanity? Now imagine an eternity where it completes and it complicates even more and more. It's not just hell for eternity. It's hell here, even here on earth because something's being forfeited when we give ourselves over to sin. Listen to what M.T. Wright says. He says, if God is holy and just, he cannot be silent when it comes to wickedness. Wrath is a reflection of his holiness, but wrath may not only be hell in the afterlife, but also a living hell now. Those that continually to give themselves over to sin become less and less human. If you don't get what he's saying, listen to this statement. Those who choose to live without God will one day find that they have forfeited their likeness in Him. Wow. We can all give testimony to that. That when we give ourselves over to those things that are cancerous in our lives, it only gets worse and worse and worse. But let's come back to this wrath thing. Because isn't love blind? I mean, haven't we heard that all our lives, that love is blind? And perfect love should be perfectly blind, right? Well, that, that's a great statement for when you're engaged, all right? Love is blind. But when you get married, it's, it's amazing how 2020 sight seems to come back, doesn't it? Wow. Really? You're going to sleep in that? It's a microscope, that's right, Dave. Because we all know that love isn't blind. Love that's blind is delusionary. It's not honest. That real love is love that has perfect sight. And God has perfect sight. In his perfect holiness, nothing is escaping his view. And this is where it gets beautiful, okay? Dr. Barnhouse uses this illustration. I'm going to use it too. 
This is, imagine, have any of you ever been to Hoover Dam? You know when they built Hoover Dam, Hoover Dam that, that one too. The water backed up and actually it's 157,900 acres of backed up water. They backed up water 110 miles. Does that number impress you? Think about this, there are, as far as the volume, it's 28,537,000 acre feet volume of water. I don't even know what that means, but I was impressed by it. <laughs> it's a lot. And you know what's funny about water is that when you cover, you know, nearly 160,000 acres of water and everything's underwater, when it's underwater, it tends to get wet. Water doesn't just forget to go over to that area. I want you to imagine for a moment that we're standing on Hoover Dam and we're looking at the trickling stream in front of us and we turn around and we see this vast lake and we realize this represents the wrath of God. This is the wrath of God that has been stored up for all time against the wickedness of men. Against us against our sins, against those that have broken the laws of God. And that wrath has been stored up to be poured out. And here's the beautiful thing is that how did God deal with his wrath? How does God deal with his hatred of sin? He dealt with it in love. How does he do that? He took all that wrath and he placed his son at the bottom of that dam and he said now stay still he was perfect and holy Jesus and everything that he had done he had no sin to endure any wrath for there was no wrath from God that was due toward Jesus Christ he lived a perfect life he was the first among us to ever do it even born of a virgin Mary not born of the seed of man that his that the seed of sin before him would be transferred to him but born of the Holy Spirit. He stands now perfect and holy, and God says, really, just stand still. And splits the dam right down the middle, and every bit of the water of 160,000 acres of water comes crashing down on His Son. Every bit of it. He poured every drop on Christ at the cross. That's why Christ said, it is finished. He endured it. Wow. Because God understood the seriousness of sin. He understood the consequences of sin, but he also understood what it takes to remove that consequence from us that we could not bear standing there at Hoover Dam. So Christ took our place in front of the Hoover Dam so that the wrath of God could come down on him. And here's the beautiful thing. If you're in Christ, the wrath of God has been satisfied. It has been fulfilled. There is no more wrath from God for you. If you're in Christ, God is never going to be angry with you again. There is no more wrath for you. Isn't that hard to believe? Because what about when I commit that sin that I swore that I would never commit again? And then I commit it again. And then I commit it again. And then I commit it again. Jesus says, how many times am I to forgive my neighbor when they sin against me? Anybody know? Yep. Seven times, seven. seven times 70. What is Jesus pointing out to us? 
He's pointing out the forgiving nature of our Father based on the sacrificial life of Christ before the throne of God. That Christ has paid it all. There's nothing left to pay. Bless you. See, when Christ is standing before the throne of God, when Christ is standing before the judgment seat of God, remember we said that Cain, when he killed Abel, Abel's blood cried out for justice? In the New Testament, it says there's a new blood that's crying now, and this blood has a better cry than the cry of Abel. So do we say that Jesus' blood is crying mercy? No. Jesus' blood isn't crying mercy. Jesus' blood is crying justice. How is that possible? Jesus isn't before the throne of the Father pleading mercy for you. He's not pleading before God saying, would you please be merciful to Randy? He's a nice guy. You know, I died for him a couple thousand years ago. No, Jesus is pleading justice for me. Because Jesus knows that in the court of our Father, there is no double payment for our crime. There's no double payment. That when the payment has been made, then those who are accused are set free. And Jesus paid it all. And so I stand before my Father redeemed. So the judgment seat of God has no fear for me now. When I stand, Jude says, in Jude, the beginning of Jude, it says, we will stand before his throne with great joy because the wrath has been removed. There's no charge against me. There's no one, we sang about it in a minute, that can stand up and point to me and say, but did you see what he did? And accuse me. Now they can say that all day long because all I do is the jujitsu move, you know, which is, yeah, I did that. And Jesus paid it. He paid for every bit of it. He is glorious. The glory is his. It's his. It's his. It's his. I even did worse stuff than that. Hey, let me show you. Oh, it's all him. He paid for it. He set me free from that. The wrath of God was poured upon Christ. That's why it says in Romans 8, chapter 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have been set free from the accusations of the law because Jesus paid it all. What does that mean? God doesn't stand as my judge anymore. He stands as my father now. And as my father, he wraps me up in his arms like I wrap my daughter up in my arms and he gets angry with all wickedness that would come against me even when that wickedness is found within me. Especially. Why does God hate the sin that I fall into and still love me? Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? Because He loves me. He's saying, Randy, understand why I gave you the gift of your sexuality. Understand what it means to be a leader. Understand how not to use those desires in you and cheapen them by making them greed. Understand your emotions and don't be given over to anger, which we'll talk about next week. He desires that because he understands the cancer of being sucked into the brokenness and the cancer of sin in our lives and is calling us to live out of the holiness which he's given us. See, apart from Christ... There is no way that I can endure to stand the wrath of God on my own. Any more than you can stand Hoover Dam being broken on you. If you're an unbeliever today, if you say, I don't believe in Christ, He is not my Savior and my Lord, you are still under the wrath of God. 
Christ has not substituted himself for you. And that is a horrific place to be. I would urge you today, because I don't know what today's going to bring you or tomorrow, but I would urge you today, if you're outside this place, that you'd repent. What does that mean? That you would come and freely receive the gift of God through Jesus, His Son, the gift of life. For believers, we're about to come to this, command, this table. And this is where it gets really good. Because when Christ removed the wrath of God, He ushered in love, and He urges us now, grasp the love of God, how wide, how long, how deep. It's deep and as powerful and as massive as Hoover Dam. And what's the name of the lake behind it? Lake Mead? I like Hoover Lake better. All right? How deep and what that now, that's trumped by the love of God. What do I mean by that? That we believe that his love was so great that it devoured his wrath so that he could pour his love out on us. That's what we remember when we come to this table. It's kind of like what not to wear. I know. Impressive, isn't it? You know what I love about that show? And it's very little, all right? <clears throat> because I never can get past the first 10 minutes. You know what happens in the first 10 minutes? They, they, sab they what do they do? They, they ambush somebody, you know, that's a horrible dresser, you know, and they're making, uh, you know, they're making fun of them. I would never do that, but I find it disturbing in self-righteous kind of way. And then they bring, they say, hey, we want to take you shopping, right? And they say, we'll give you $5,000 to where you can go shopping spree in New York. And they bring them into the closet and they say, but here's the deal, you gotta bring all your clothes, right? Am I getting this right? Those of you that watch it, their heads shaking everywhere. Wow, okay. Uh, <clears throat> what do they do with the clothes that they bring to New York with them? They throw them away. And who is it that throws them away? What is it, what's their names? Stacy and Clinton. All right. You never thought what not to wear was proclaiming the gospel. But here's what's amazing. Is they're taking the old and they're saying, we want to, this is a monumental day because the old is gone and the new has come. The old you and the way that you dress that hid yourself in your inner beauty is now being thrown into the trash can because we're not going to wear that Smurf t-shirt anymore. Alright? We're going to put it in the trash can. We're throwing it away. So that now we can teach you how to dress in such a way that the beauty of who you are is displayed. Right? And here is a, here's an endless gift certificate. Probably more money than you've ever spent on clothes in your entire life. Alright? You're going to go spend. So the person has to do two things. One, they have to emotionally commit themselves to throwing away their old clothes. It's amazing to me how emotionally attached they are to those things, all right? That's about when I turn it off. After that episode, you know, okay, that was fun. All right, next show. What do you do when you throw the old away and they give you the credit card with $5,000 on it? What do you do? It's a deep theological truth here. You what? Try to, Try to buy your old clothes back, Matt. That is sad, man. 
There are cameras on you right now. We're making an episode. You spin, don't you? Yes, you go spin. Even the children know. What's the wrath of God? The wrath of God is his love that also is in harmony with his hate of that which has robbed us of the dignity of who we were made to be in his image. The wrath of God that is being poured out on all wickedness that is robbing us the joy and the celebration that we are his children. But when we are set free from the wrath of God and we've brought and brought into the family of God, our Father says, now take off the clothes of the old life. Take off your sexual immorality. Take off your greed. Take off all those things that are broken and shattered. But also, here is my grace. Now spend. Spend. Spend to buy the clothes that I have made for you. And put those clothes on so that we can dance in the glory of who he's made us to be. Because here is a beautiful thing, folks. Our holy God, when Christ took all of his wrath, he not only set us free from the judgment of God, he made us holy. We are part of the holy. So we come to this table. And we come to this table to do two things. We come to this table to, to proclaim and to remember. We come to this table to proclaim that what I've said today is true. Yes, we've been redeemed. Yes, God's wrath has been satisfied. Yes, now his love is abundant for me. We come to remember all that he did to make that a possibility. So we come to lay down the what not to wear. And we come to pick up and to clothe ourselves with his love for us. Here are these words from Paul. For what I've received from the Lord, I'll also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took this bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So before we come to this table, there are two things that I would like to say to you about this table. Two reasons you should not come to this table. If you are not a believer today, if you've not experienced the, uh, the restoration, the renewal, the change of experiencing life with Christ, I would encourage and beg with you today that you would experience that. If you don't know what I'm talking about and you want to talk to some people about how you can experience that, there are people out by the information table that would love to answer your questions and pray with you. This table is not for those that have not partaken in the life of Christ. But also for you believers. I have a warning for you before you come to this table. That after hearing what I've said today, you still sit there and say, there are areas in my life that Jesus cannot touch. There are sins in my life that I have said to Jesus, no. Keep your hands off, I will not forgive. No, keep your hands off, I will not change. No, keep your hands off, I am not going to that place. You know what, it's just love, isn't it? It's the nature of love. If you're in love with somebody and they're, they're doing this, 
you stop and you go, wait, which is it? You know what you... <laughs> because what do you want? You want this. That's what Jesus is saying. Deal with this before you come here because here is this. Right? Now, what does that mean to deal with it? Because some of you are going to get in your mind and go, oh, did I repent of that sin? Did I let that go? Am I holding on to that? What do I... And then it just gets out of control, doesn't it? You know what? Let me make it simple for you. If you have a desire to have a desire for Christ to have everything in your life, run to the table. And then let him deal with that. All right? If you're saying, Jesus, I don't know what it means to give you it all, but I want to give you it all. I want that to be who I am. Come on. And let his power pour into your life. Okay? The way we're going to do it is we're going to start some music in just a minute. It's a time of worship, time of meditation. Use this time to spend with the Lord. To ask the questions in your heart that maybe you need to ask. Maybe there's some things that have been said today that you're troubled by and that you need answers for. I love that. Because your questions may be the greatest doorway into experiencing God you've ever had. Don't discard your questions. Whatever you need to do during this time, pray. Maybe you need to go out and talk with somebody. Maybe somebody needs to pray with you. I don't know. But when you're ready and you feel like the Lord has prepared you, then come to the table. When you get up here, you can stand, you can kneel. When you're ready for us to serve you, just put your hands out and we'll be happy to serve you. If you'd like for us to pray for you when you come up here, just cross your chest. We'll be happy to pray for it with you before we serve you. Uh, make that clear. You know, even if you have to mouth it, pray for me so that we won't miss it, okay? Let's pray. Lord, Prepare us now, Father. A lot has been said. Lord, you are a consuming fire. To believe that that consuming fire now is the fire that warms us and consumes us into your holiness and declares that we are your beloved. That that consuming fire and all its power now because of the cross is you rejoicing over us. That, Lord, you are consuming fire through the cross is that we are your joy that we are your celebration, that we are your bride, that we are your children. Lord, help us come to this table. And we just confess to you, Lord, that we don't hate sin like you hate sin. We have such a small view of it and we let it just linger in our lives and sometimes we see what a cancer it's become. Dear God, rescue us from that. Help us to come to this table and put down that which has poisoned us. And help us drink deep of your love for us. Heal us here. Meet us here. In Christ's name.